following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're in a series on Hebrews, but we weren't in the series on Hebrews last week. We did a sermon on love, just to tie it into Valentine's Day and talk a little bit about what agape love looks like in the life of a Christian. And I only got halfway through the message yesterday, so we're just picking up this week where we left off. So just a quick review of the ground that we covered last week. Number one, we live in a consumer culture. And by a consumer culture, I simply mean we live in a world where a lot of what we do is conditional and transactional. We go to a store, we give them money, they give us something in return. If we don't like it, we go to a new store until they treat us the way we like or give us the things we like. And we basically say, if you please me, I'll reward you which is all well and good when it comes to things, but if we're not careful, we can become the kind of people who do this with people. And we say to them, if you please me, I will reward you. And I mentioned a quote from a a book last week on our zombie Sunday, uh, that this is the idea that we demand human suffering as the price for our pleasures, meager and cheap as they are. I mentioned last week that in pagan cultures, they worshipped gods who were consumers in some fashion. And you'll see up here on the screen actually some some vases and some carvings from the ancient world where you see this idea of human sacrifice embodied. This was just something that was commonly accepted. For those of you who are fans of comic book movies, uh, Thanos does this. He's the god, quote-unquote, to get his power. He demands a sacrifice, uh, even from those that he loves. And this idea was that their god was lacking, and that their God would consume us as a means to feed them and give them something they didn't previously have. But part of the good news of the gospel is that God is not a consuming God in that way. When the Bible speaks of a consuming fire, this is something of purification. It's not God feeding off of us in some way because he's lacking something. In fact, the reverse is true. In Christ, we see that God gives himself to us to feed us which we see uh, in the emblems that we use when we participate in communion. It's not cannibalism. This is a spiritual sense that God gives to us what we do not have. God does not need to feed on us in any fashion to give him something that he lacks. And as we see that kind of love given to us, in the Old Testament it's called a covenantal kind of love. The New Testament's called agape. And this self-sacrificing kind of love, as we give our lives to Christ and as Christ transforms us, that becomes the kind of love that comes into us from God and flows out of us to others. So we move from being consumer lovers to covenant lovers with this agape kind of love. The definition we used last week was this kind of love is always giving, it involves total commitment, and it does so no matter how people respond. We don't wait for someone to be good enough to love. We're not doing this as a consumer transaction where I love them only because I'll get something in response from them to feed me. We simply love. This is selfless. It doesn't change whether the love given is returned or not. Uh, we noted this is a command of followers of Jesus. John fifteen seventeen, love or agape each other. Uh, in Ephesians, I'm commanded to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And agape is the word for both of those. There's something about my love to my spouse that ought to reflect the self-giving, the sacrificial nature of Jesus' love for me. 
And then First John 4, 8, anyone who does not love like this does not know God because God is that kind of love. And as we give our lives to him, it doesn't mean we show it perfectly, but God's at work transforming us, continuing the good work he began. So that the longer we walk with Christ, the more our life is characterized by this kind of love. Uh, and I started five things to note about this kind of love. The first one was that this kind of love is a decision. It's not based on an emotion. So when the Bible tells us to do this, it's a call to commitment. And it's not that love doesn't have feelings that go with it. But this kind of agape love is independent from feelings. You don't have to feel good about someone to give this kind of agape love. You don't have to like them to give this kind of love. It's not emotion-based. Our emotions waver. And so other kinds of love might waver with our feelings about love. But this kind of love doesn't because it's a decision. It's something we choose to do. It's how we orient our lives as we relate to others. And then the second thing we talked about last week was that it was sacrificial. Uh, Just as Jesus is broken and spilled out, uh, once again, as we see when we participate in communion, we are called to be broken and spilled out for others. Not in the same way Jesus did. We can't save other people with our sacrifice. But because Christ did this for us, we do this for others. That's our money. That's our time. That's our emotions. It's once again the ordering of our lives in such a way that we live in commitment to others, even at cost to ourselves. And after talking with some of you last week, it's, it's worth noting, as we are broken and spilled out for others, we need to be refilled. We're not Jesus. We don't have an endless supply. So part of what we're looking for in ongoing church life is that even as we are broken and spilled out for another person, there's someone else in the church who is loving us like that. And so through the work of Jesus, through his spirit, through his word, through the people of Jesus, we are continually refilled so that we have something to give to others. Agape love doesn't demand that that comes back from the person you're loving. But an ideal church community, it's part of what we experience. We are broken and spilled out for others. Others are broken and spilled out for us. And this brings us to new territory now. Uh, so point number three is that this kind of love is stabilizing. So the consumer kind of love never has enough. And this creates some problems because there's always a restlessness and always a tension. So I, I've used this example before, I think. It takes me forever to choose a show on Netflix, right, because there's so many. I always assume there's a better show. If you would look at my Netflix history of all the shows I've watched, I've watched about 15 minutes of a whole lot of shows. So I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. There's got to be something better out there. I am not sufficiently pleased by this particular movie. So I've got this huge queue. You'd be like, wow, you watch a lot of movies. I don't. I watch the first 15 minutes of a whole lot of movies because there's got to be something better out there, right? This one's just not quite good enough. I was thinking about this when I drove down to Grand Rapids last time. I was driving to GR and I needed to get something to eat. It was, to my embarrassment, very hard to choose an exit to stop at because I'd see an exit with, hey, there's these eating places and I'm like, ooh, and I'm like, I wonder if the next exit's bigger. I don't remember from my last trip. That next one might be the one with KFC and A&W root beer in the same building. And then I get there and I'm like, you know, if I'd wait till Grand Rapids, I'd have a true smorgasbord of food. And then I just end up not eating because I can't decide. 
And then on the way home, I'm so hungry, I just get gas station food, and so it just doesn't work out well at all. But but this is part of the problem when you have a consumer mindset, which I do. I have a consumer mindset that I, I'm restless. I always feel like there's something I'm missing and that there's something more. And once again, if we're not careful, then we can do this with people. This is the type of consumerism with people. And this can be not just with marriages, but with friendships. Um, you, can, you can have this idea that somewhere there's a better conversationalist than the person I'm having conversation with. Somewhere there's someone who has more empathy for me than the friends I have now. They have better personalities. There's better people to vacation with. There's better humor. There's better listeners. There's better sex. You name it. We have this list of things, depending on the kind of relationship we're in, where we get restless because the person in front of us isn't sufficient. They're not making me sufficiently happy. And if we have this consumer mindset, we are never content with the person that's in front of us. We're always wondering, is there really a better fit out there for me? And frankly, for for those of us who are married, have we ever wrestled with the idea, we might see another couple that's getting along really well. We're like, you know, if I had a spouse like that, I bet we'd get along really well too. And then if you think that, suddenly whatever way you weren't getting along with your spouse before just gets worse. Because now you're genuinely discontent, and now you're actually holding an option in your mind at least, and and it it's now that idea of the covenant you were supposed to have begins to fracture because now you begin to treat the relationship like a consumer. There must be someone out there who will complete me, which is one of my pet peeve phrases. Because if love means you have to find someone for whom you can say you complete me, you'll never stop looking. Because there is no one out there who will complete you. That's Jesus' job. So Jesus is who we look to for that. So this agape love that God calls us to, this, particularly in marriage, it's a covenantal love, but there's a sense in which in all kinds of relationships we... We form a a sort of covenant, especially as with the people of Christ, that we're in this together. And covenantal or agape love says, I'm committed to you. You don't need to complete me for me to be faithfully present in your life because my love for you is not based on what you can do for me. It's based on the fact that I want to serve you. I want to love you because you bear the image of God. You value worth and dignity. Jesus died for you like Jesus died for me. And so I will choose to extend love to you. And once again, this isn't something that's wrapped up in emotion, though sometimes emotion is part of it. This is, I will order my life in such a way that I will do things for your good. I will seek to be broken and spilled out on your behalf. And that may look different in different situations, but it's this commitment to sacrifice. And when you take that kind of approach to life, it stabilizes you. Now, you don't have to be restless. Jesus is the source that solves restlessness. But learning to settle in to the people that God has placed in our lives and saying, okay, this is now who my life uh, is engaged with. 
And rather than finding all the reasons to be discontent, I will look to Christ for my contentment. And I will seek to serve and I will seek to love. Now I'm going to mention later, we can have plenty of extra conversations about if you're trapped in situations like an abusive relationship or something like that. There's things to talk about, about how we bring wisdom to relationships that may be genuinely damaging to us. So if you're kind of reacting and going, but I know this person in my life who was toxic and who it's killing me if they're part of my life. All right, let's, let's talk about what wisdom looks like in applying this. But, but until we get to that conversation, I want us to just to look at this big picture, this idea that we are called to commitment to those whom God has placed in our lives. Whatever that commitment looks like for whatever kind of relationship that is. And what I'm envisioning as I say this is what does church community look like? If on any given Sunday or Wednesday or small group or you just, you meet someone in Myers as you're shopping and you see them and you recognize them and you go, you know what? I know this person in my life is committed to my good. I know this person is safe for me. I know that they're committed to agape love for me. Man, if you can show up week after week in a community like that, that sounds really compelling to me. If we're all committed to that kind of approach. So covenantal or agape love stabilizes us. It addresses that restlessness. We seek to love that which is in front of us instead of always wondering, is there something or someone somewhere else that will make it easier for me to love? Which brings us to number four, and that is agape love is costly. So, yeah, it'll break our hearts. Agape love forces us to walk into hard situations when actually what we want to do is avoid them with our hobbies or our phones or our entertainment or our jobs. We can find ways to walk away from tough situations, but agape love says, oh, no, 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 you must invest. You must invest even at great cost, in the people around you that God has called you to love. You don't have to always like it, but it's the call. I mean, Jesus models this, right? Jesus enters a world where many people hated him, and he gave the greatest investment of all. While we were sinners, before we were worthy In any sense, Jesus loves us. That's the love he places in us. That's the love that we're passing on. We don't wait till people are worthy. We won't, don't wait until it is easy. We love and that costs us something. Paul says in Philippians 2.17, we'll be poured out like the offering. We will be broken and spilled out for others as we mirror what's been happening as Jesus has related with us. So a couple examples for this. Let's start with the closest relationship I have, and that's the relationship with my wife. I can't love her without being broken and spilled out for her. This means a number of things. It means hard conversations. It means when I know there's tension between the two of us, I've got to walk into that tension. Not for my sake, though I certainly will benefit from having this kind of conversation, but for the sake of my wife, I must walk in to disagreements and anger and tension. Uh, I've got to be responsible around the home in ways I don't want to. 
Uh, I could give you silly little examples of things that I know my wife wants me to do that I just don't want to do. <laughs> that was probably a little too loud, Doug. You know, but the reality is, even if part of me goes, oh, that is a silly thing that you want cleaned up. Uh, you know what? My wife wants it cleaned up. And what does honor look like for my wife? Everybody say, clean it up. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's juggling responsibilities. It's talking about budgets and schedules when I really don't want to talk about budgets and schedules because it makes me irritable. It's learning how my words and my attitudes can build her up or can tear her down. All of those types of things, those are all sacrificial things for me that I must do as a follower of Christ to love my wife. Anyone who does not agape love does not know God. All right, friends, my claim is that I know God. And if that is true, agape love must characterize my relationship with my wife. Not perfectly, right? Not on this side of heaven. But that is what I am committed to. That's what Christ is doing in me. I can't settle for less than that. We can't love our friends with agape love without cost to ourselves. At some point, your friends will let you down. How do I know this? Because you are my friends, and you have let me down. How do you know this? Because I am your friend, and you can say it, I've let you down. Right, let's just be honest. This isn't a secret, is it? We love imperfect people. Having good close friends will cost us. They will make us angry. They will let us down. They will say things they, will, they shouldn't and not say things they should. They won't show up like we want them to or feel like we need them to. They'll forget about us. They'll overlook us at particular times. This is the ebb and flow of friendship. But to show agape love... Anyone who does not love, does not know God, uh, we stick with it, friends. We stick with it. We stick with each other. This is what God has called us to do. We are that presence on earth that is meant to show the world the power of the love of God to unite unlovable people. We can't love our neighbors without cost to ourselves. Who is my neighbor? It's everybody. The parable of the Good Samaritan pretty much makes that clear. Everybody's your neighbor. Even your enemies, even the people you really dislike or who disgust you, or you you name the feeling that you have, that is your neighbor, and we're called to love them. What does this mean? This means time spent getting to know people who might make us uncomfortable but we want to know them. We want to know their story. We want to know what's been happening in their life so we have wisdom, God-given wisdom, to know how to minister to people faithfully and well and offer them the hope of the gospel into the situation that their life is in. We listen, we love, and then we speak truth with love and grace because that's part of agape love too is being bold enough and strong enough to speak truth into people's lives. We represent Christ. 
with humility and boldness. And then we can't love the church without cost because we're not perfect people. The Bible says bear each other's burdens. It's a command. We bring burdens to church. All of you who walked in the doors this morning brought a burden with you of some sort. The command we have is to help each other bear those burdens. And Scripture says, and so you fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love, and that's agape, love. So this means two things. One is you find out what other people's burdens are. And then with grace and humility and boldness, you help people carry it. Number two, it means you let other people into your life and you tell them what your burden is because you are helping them fulfill the law of Christ by doing that. Uh, and this will happen. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. In genuine church life, you will help others bear their burdens. They will help you bear their burdens. Yeah, I think I said that with the right pronouns. Now, how do I know that it is inevitable that we'll bear each other's burdens? Because I have borne your burdens and you have borne mine. It's just the way it works. And this is part of the agape love that we are called to and it will be costly and we all know this because we have all, I think, experienced church life either in this church or somewhere else as hard. In some fashion. It might be someone in the church who deeply offends you. It might be someone up here who deeply offends you. You might be hurt, and I don't know all the different ways, but I know that it happens. It happens in every church in America and in the world. And agape love calls us to bear that and to press into those moments of hurt, not to use that as a cause for distancing or walking away, but is to use that as an opportunity to walk closer to someone and say, okay, listen, we're going to agape love it here, so we got to talk. we got to figure this out. we got to understand what repentance and forgiveness looks like and what restoration looks like of this fractured relationship because that is what we are called to. And uh, if I, if we don't do this, then I don't think we know God. But uh, but I think we do know God, so we got to do this. We got to walk into this, and that's costly. But and this brings me to my final point. It's also transformational. So I've talked a lot about what the hardship of agape love looks like, but there's there's a prize on the other end. And we don't do it for the prize, but it's a prize that comes with it. I think God ordered the world and designed us so that if we show agape love, there's something very, very important that happens, not just for others, but in us as well. So I I think we're transformed when we give Christ love. Here's a couple ways. I can't remain a proud person and give agape love. If I am truly proud, I won't give agape love because I just don't care about what other people are going through. But when I commit to giving agape love, even if I struggle with pride, I'm convinced that that act of purposefully humbling myself to serve others, God uses that to transform us as part of changing our minds and our hearts. I can't remain self-centered and genuinely give agape love. Because if I genuinely give agape love, I'm giving something that I want. It's a costly gift. I'm going to give time that I want as me time to someone else. 
I'm going to give money that I want to use for wherever I stop at an exit next time to someone else. I'm going to have to give, and that's going to automatically challenge the self-centeredness in me. I can't settle for being resentful. I can't settle for being short-tempered. I can't settle for being mean or lustful or calloused. All of those things will be challenged as I give agape love. And I, I really do think it's the process that God uses to bring about a lot of change in us. I like this quote from an article about corporate worship. I mentioned it last week, or I mentioned the article, but not this quote. In the New Testament epistles, we see the difficulty and the division often evolved when sinners gather together in following Jesus. Church is often messy. So what is it we're getting out of this? In the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse of what God is doing with us motley sinners He is hastening the day when his elect people from every tongue, tribe, race, and nation will gather despite their differences to celebrate their union with Christ and their unity in Christ and going to church at the foretaste of that day. So we do agape love. It's a foretaste of heaven. I think that's the way God designed it. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Hey, let's do church community for real. That's going to give us a glimpse of this. I I tend to think that when we pray for the transformation of Christ, well, I'm certain of this, that God doesn't wave a magic wand over us because God doesn't do magic. God does miracles. And in the process of miracles, sometimes it is a miraculous moment, but sometimes it's miraculous how God uses things we might not expect in ordinary moments to bring about something miraculous in us. Which is why I think if you ask God to make you more loving, he's going to put people around you that are going to task your ability to love. We don't learn to love better when everyone around us is easy to love. We learn to love better when everyone around us is hard to love, or at least when some people around us are hard to love. So if your prayer is that you, that God help you to love better, God will put people around you who are hard to love. You know how he answered my prayer on that? He gave me you. You know how he answered your prayer? He gave you me. That also was too loud, Doug. You know... You could easily just, maybe you should do this after the service, turn to the, to the person next to you and just say, I'm glad God gave me you. That could be loaded with all kinds of meaning. <laughs> they won't know if you don't clarify. It could mean, man, I'm really experiencing you as a blessing right now. It could mean, you know what? God must have you in my life for a reason. I need to embrace this. All right? So I want to close with um, 1 Corinthians 13, the classic chapter on love. So Paul gives a context for this chapter. In Corinthians, he's in the process of talking to the church about their corporate time together. And in chapters 12 and 14 are kind of a bookend for chapter 13. So 12 and 14, 12 is, hey, you're all one body but many parts. And like, if you're a toe or you're the brain, like the brain can't say, oh, that's gross, you're a toe. And the toe can't be like, oh, get over yourself just because you're a brain. So he's using this body analogy to go, hey, we are really different. Some of you are really clean and some of you are really dirty and some of you are beautiful and you're gross, you're all these things, but you're all part of the body of 
Christ, and there's a purpose for all of you, so figure out how to get along. And then in chapter 14, he's like, now concerning spiritual gifts, and he shows people how in their church, they all had these different spiritual gifts, like parts of the body, and they were all jealous and mad and angry and trying to hog the spotlight. Like, they were just not, it wasn't a good show. So between 12 and 14, Paul basically stops and goes, okay, uh, never mind, let's refocus. Here's the excellent way you're looking for. If you don't get this right, this other stuff isn't going to matter. So 1 Corinthians 13 is, listen, if you speak with the tongues of angels, but you don't have love, you're just noise. It's like walking through the congregation with a big gong and just slamming it as hard as you can. So uh, all these things, he goes through this list. He's like, okay, okay it all, before we have any more discussion about this, we got to focus on what love is. So I just want to go through this section of 1 Corinthians where love is... And what I did this week was I read through a whole bunch of different translations because the language in all of these, man, it taps into not just the individual meanings of words, but uh, imagery they're pulling from and all kinds of things. And it's fascinating to just read multiple translations of the Bible about how they phrase these things. So this is, you're not going to find this in any one translation is my point. I'm pulling from a lot of different things to try to capture what's being said, and occasionally I'm offering a little aside, you'll see it in italics so you know that's my extra explanation that's drawing from the overall message of Scripture. But I just want us to settle into a little bit about what love is. So love patiently endures mistreatment. And I'm noting it doesn't excuse mistreatment or try to pretend it didn't happen or explain someone's bad behavior away, but love patiently endures mistreatment. Um, someone calls you an idiot on Facebook in a way that's just not fair and is humility or is humiliating. Love patiently endures mistreatment. Love is gentle and love is consistently kind. Love is not envious when others are blessed. You can look at the person who has the bigger house, the nicer car. They're going on the better vacations. They got the promotion while you haven't been able to get the promotion. That you go through whatever list you have. Love is not envious when others are blessed. Love does not strut or boast. It's not proudly inflated by its own importance. Love does not need to make a point to other people about how awesome it is. Uh, If you're that awesome, people will figure it out. If you've got to make sure it's clear to people, you might not be as awesome as you think you are. Love doesn't strut or boast. It's not proudly inflated by its own importance. Love is not unshapely or unseemly or improper. It takes on a form that's compelling and attractive. And actually, this is a word that taps into uh, the idea of people who are beautiful. It's this kind of imagery. Love is beautiful and compelling. Uh, and the shapely, unshapely language means what you think it means in terms of people. Love is attractive. There's something about seeing genuine love demonstrated that draws the eye, that draws the heart. Love does not dishonor others with shame or disrespect. Love never belittles. Love never mocks. 
Love never tries to make a point in a way that makes another person look stupid. Love never makes an argument in such a way that you know other people listening will laugh in derision at how silly this other person was. Agape love never does that. Now, love might point out the the foolishness of an argument. Love has no problem speaking truth. But love does not dishonor others with shame or disrespect. Um, I think that posts on social media would go down by about 90% if the world would follow this. It's an easy thing to get caught up in. We, You can get your 20 minutes of fame or whatever minutes of fame you're supposed to get on Twitter and on Facebook and things like that by being the person who mocks others better than anybody else because that's what get the clicks. But agape love does not dishonor others with shame or disrespect. Love does not selfishly seek its own honor or attempt to get what's mine. Love doesn't fly off the handle with anger or quickly take offense. Okay, so I'm the poster child about what that looks like. I have cut off toes to prove it, which I will not put up on the screen like I did before and traumatized all of you. You're welcome. Uh, so I say this as a person who um, anger for a lot of my life has been a real issue I've had to deal with, but love does not fly off the handle with anger or quickly take offense. Love counts to 10 or 110 if it needs to. Love does not hurt others with anger. Now, you can be angry and not sin. The Bible's clear about that. There's a righteous anger against sin and injustice and things like that, but that's a different thing than wounding those around us with outbursts of our anger. Right? Love does not fly off the handle and, and doesn't quickly take offense. I think another way of thinking that is love does not assume that others are trying to hurt them. Maybe another way of saying that is that love kind of assumes or hopes for the best. We'll get to this in a little bit. And if there's going to be a reason to be angry about something, it will be arrived at carefully and thoughtfully. Is this something actually that God is angry about and thus I can be angry about righteously? And then, how do I express my anger in such a way that is also righteous? Love does not keep a punch list of wrongs it has endured. Okay, friends, if in an argument you're bringing up something that happened 10 years ago, you're wrong, biblically speaking. That is sin. you got to let that go. Love does not keep a punch list of wrongs. And if you can't let that go, I assume a couple things. One is you have not talked properly with the person who was on the other side of this offense. Or you have not got on your knees and begged God to do a work in you, and it's probably both. Now, I'm not talking about the process. There's types of things done to us that we need to work out. Because it damaged us and we have to come to grips with it. And this is where I think Christian counselors play an important role in Christian friends. I'm, I'm not talking about that process. I'm talking about the argument comes up and you say, do you remember when? And friends, it was a long time ago and that's a sin. And if that's where your mind goes, you need to deal with that. 
Love does not keep a punch list of wrongs it has endured. Love does not delight in unrighteousness or injustice. Love does not cheer when others are harmed. One translation I read said it doesn't revel when others grovel. How about saying it like this? Love does, love loves humility, but not humiliation. I struggle with this one. Because there's people in the world that I just think are arrogant, pompous fools. And when things go wrong for them, I have this tendency to go, yeah. Just kind of smile on my face like, oh, you got what's coming to you now. Love does not cheer when others are harmed or doesn't revel when others grovel. Does not love when other people are humiliated. So yeah, I guess that's a sin if I think that. What I ought to be thinking is that Oh, dear God, let this moment of clarity in their life be a thing that changes and transforms them. Let it let drive them to you. Send Christian people into their life. And if it's someone I know, I guess let it be me. Send Christian people into their life who can give them the good news of the gospel so they experience a transformation of Jesus and that which once characterized them no longer characterizes them. That's what I ought to be thinking as a person full of God's agape love. But I, I tend to gloat. And that is sin. Am I alone in this? I'm just, I'm just being honest. Just being honest. Love does not revel when others grovel. Love celebrates honesty, truth, righteousness. Love always gives a safe place of shelter. Bearing or covering the baggage of others, that's not the same as enabling the baggage of others. So if we think of that, I as a person full of God's agape love needs to be a shelter for others. Okay, that means, and if we even think of this church as a place of shelter, there's a lot of people in here. There's a lot of shelter that needs to be offered. One thing we can't do is enable baggage because that has a ripple effect on others seeking shelter. But, because there is baggage, we address it. We're a safe place for people to bring their sins and their failures. Uh, The church has to be, we have to be a safe place for that. And safe means we can hear, we can absorb, and now we will show the love of Christ and point them toward the healing power of Jesus. But it doesn't mean we can pretend nothing's happening or enable because now that causes damage and the whole thing needs to be a shelter. Right? But, but if people bring wounds and all these things to us, love is a safe place for this to happen. Love and trust people to God. This, the phrase love always trusts or believes all things, a better way to say that is that love and trust people to God. That is, I'm not anyone's savior. You're not my savior. If you're ministering to me in some fashion and you just have all kinds of worry that it's not going well, uh, love doesn't feel the need to fix everything. Love can entrust people to God. Uh, Love believes that God will be faithful in people's lives and that we can give what we can, 
Healthy boundaries are important. And at the end of the day, we give what God enables us to give, and then we turn that person over to God and entrust them to God's care. Love remains hopeful and faithful during difficult times. And I just made a note, even if that happens from a distance, because that can happen from a distance. Sometimes we might be called to love people who are actually dangerous to be around. Okay, maybe you ought not love them from five feet away. You might need to love them from a distance. In fact, you probably should. There are examples more that I could give you. My most practical example is that one of my sisters really wrestled with a drug problem for years. I and my family could not love her properly at home. She had to be somewhere where she could get help. Our our love did not waver, even across geographical distance. So when I say love remains hopeful and faithful during difficult times, there's wisdom to apply to what that looks like. But the goal is, how do I remain faithful and hopeful, no matter what kind of structure I have to put in place? Love bears incredible loads without breaking, and love never stops Loving well, and I think that well includes profoundly, but also wisely. Okay, this feels like a godly vision of the kingdom of heaven on earth. If this is us as a church body, oh, that is beautiful. That is compelling, not just to me to want to be a part of that, but I suspect as we think about how do we impact our community and the world for Christ, part of that is using our words to evangelize. But part of that is, okay, what does this, you're asking me to, to give my life to Jesus and to join this community. What does this community look like? Oh, oh, you have no idea. It looks like this. And I don't know how that is not a compelling message about the power of Christ in the world. And we get to be the ones through whom God offers that message. That's awesome. So as we get back into the rest of Hebrews, uh, starting next week, let's just remember, as we talk through everything, it it comes down, though, to this. Without love, uh, we just got to show up with a big old gong and just start beating it. And none of us want to do that. It's the the power of God's love in us that changes everything. Lord, I am grateful that you are a God of love in the deepest, most powerful and significant sense of the word. I'm grateful that you have loved us with a, a depth of love that we cannot comprehend and we'll probably spend eternity unpacking. And God, as your children, as your servants, as your followers, you have given us the privilege, not only of receiving that love, but then passing it on, of embodying it. Lord, help us to be passionate about this. Help us to do it well. We need your help to do that. Uh, Help us, as your ambassadors, to be people who are to be people through whom the kingdom of God is beautiful and compelling. In the midst of our weaknesses and failures, your glory will shine. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.